Amos chapter 7, uh, 2020 vision is the title of our sermon uh, this evening. It's all about how we see things. Uh, it's how God's word enables us to see things that are hidden uh, and to see through all the falsehoods that people sometimes uh, raise up because they have their own interests uh, they want to preserve a certain view of, of reality. Now, immediately you say that, it's a very contemporary note, isn't it? Because uh, even in, within the last uh, year or so, uh, there are new expressions in our language uh, which talk about how people try to manipulate the truth. Uh, people in power, uh, politicians uh, who have no concern for the truth of their statements, uh, will come out with what we now call fake news. And this comes about because they're more concerned about connecting emotionally with people than they are about having actually factual things uh, communicated. And uh, one, of the, one of the most recent examples was uh, when Donald Trump was inaugurated, uh, he predicted that his inauguration, the numbers at the inauguration, would be far greater than anything that had uh, happened before because he was so popular. Uh, now, when it came to the day, uh, it seemed to be obvious that actually there had been more present at the previous presidential inauguration. So look at these uh, photos side by side. Uh, the one 2009, you know, there's hardly a space for anyone to, to be filled in. Whereas uh, in the most recent one, uh, there were certainly bigger gaps. So in all, uh, it's virtually certain that the numbers uh, were greater in 2009. But the, the president's spokesman said that uh, he had alternative facts. Uh, so we have fake news, and we have alternative facts, and we have a false media. Uh, Fake news, when uh, the president was uh, campaigning uh, after uh, being elected, he seemed to uh, be in a continual cycle of campaigning. He was in Florida and mentioned that there had been a, a terrorist attack in Sweden, uh, much to the surprise of the Swedish authorities, who had no uh, such knowledge of a terrorist attack. It was another example of fake news. So a lot of this going on across the Atlantic, but then on this side of the Atlantic we have our own spin doctors, and we've been accustomed for some time uh, that people will try to massage the news. And we have these expressions that people have been economical with the truth. So the truth falls victim so often to political ends. We live in a world where it's very difficult to see what's real and what's fake. And that's true in the spiritual world. Spiritually, uh, we're told in the Bible that the, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Satan is the original spin doctor. Uh, he is the one, after all, who said to Eve, did God really say and then, with great subtlety, he brings in his own version of events and causes Eve to disobey what God said. And in chapter 7, uh, when you look at uh, Amos, although 
Uh, sometimes it seems that the themes are very similar. Uh, there are different emphases, and one of the emphases in chapter 7 is on seeing, or God showing. We're told again and again that Amos sees a vision, God shows him something. Uh, God showed me. He has a privileged insight to see things as they are. And then we've got this biographical section in chapter 7, uh, where Amos uh, meets with the fake priest Amaziah, a man who has all the credentials of the establishment, who's a recognized religious figure, but the truth is that he is a phony. He does not speak from God. And he despises the, the one who is the true prophet and looks down upon him as though he's something of a, a country hick. And God's uh, word through Amos is to help us to see uh, through uh, all of the, the, the smoke and mirrors to what is the truth. God and his word reveals to us things as they really are. And it's our prayer that God will do that this evening, that God will shine his light uh, upon his word and upon our lives and upon our, our situation, upon the way that we relate to God, where the truth is about where we really stand before God this evening. Uh, I want to look with you at chapter 7 and first of all to look at God revealing uh, his justice, his justice and his mercy. And then, uh, secondly, uh, we look at this episode between Amos and Amaziah as seeing who it is that is really telling the truth. Who is it that is telling the truth? So first of all, seeing justice and mercy, and then seeing who's telling the truth. The prophet's privilege, then, was to see things as they truly are, because God gave him insight. Uh, that's why the prophet is sometimes called uh, a seer. And in some of the translations uh, in chapter 7, Amaziah refers to Amos as a seer. He is someone who sees, who has insight. And one of the things that Amos is permitted to see is the justice of God. Now, in Amos's day, people believed that not only is there a God, but he is a God who will judge. He's a God who has moral standards, and he will judge those who break his law. But the problem with Israel was, although they believed this, they thought that they were exempt from God's justice. And they thought they were exempt because they were simply Israelites. Uh, being uh, privileged members of the nation of Israel, and going along and, and worshipping according, well, to greater or lesser extents, according to the Bible, uh, performing sacrifice and all the rest, they thought that that outward form of religion meant that they were safe from the justice, the judgment of God. Now, the, the Bible as it unfolds tells us that the true Jew is one who is one inwardly. Paul uh, in Romans has already said that he is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, uh, but he is one who is a Jew in the heart. He is circumcised in the heart. And God, in uh, all periods of time, has had a relationship with his people which has been built on faith. That was true of Israel, as it's true of the church today. And if there's no faith, if there's no experience of the grace of God, then all of the external religion uh, is of no avail 
to them. And the people of God, uh, the Israelites in Amos's day, were relying upon things which would not save them. Uh, the judgment of God was hanging over them. They couldn't see it. And God sends his prophet that their eyes might be opened to the reality of judgment. Now today, of course, the problem is different. Uh, people refuse to believe in a God who would act in judgment. And we look at events that take place and people shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's just stuff. It's just stuff that happens. There's no moral hand at the helm of events, no judge who will call anyone to account. Things in the world, people say, just operate according to the laws of nature. And again, for such people in our day, uh, the prophecy of Amos points us to the fact that God is behind the events of history, that he is in control of nature, and that uh, the events that take place in our world are pointing us to the ultimate judgment of God. Now, there are three visions Amos saw. And first of all, we have the vision of locusts. Now, the locust is obviously a tiny creature. Uh, it's an insect, a uh, kind of grasshopper, which breeds up. Uh, given the right conditions, it will multiply uh, hugely so that it becomes an unstoppable wave of destruction. The plague of locusts showed that God's control over things extends to the, the tiny details of life, to the tiny insect. Uh, he is the Lord of all creation. He forms even the locust. Uh, Amos sees God preparing, or literally it is forming, swarms of locusts. The locust plague was one of the, the plagues that's mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy as a covenant curse. So uh, it's, it's an evidence that God acts in, in chastisement. It's one of those characteristic ways by which God judges people. It was one of the plagues God inflicted upon Egypt. Amos sees the Lord forming the locusts when the latter growth was just beginning uh, to sprout. So the king's share had been harvested. The second crop was coming on. Uh, the first cut, the, the, the king's share, seems to be a kind of income tax that was uh, charged on the people. We're talking, I think, here about hay crops. So these are grass fields. And the first hay crop has been taken and that's been given to the king. And the, the next crop, the second cut of hay, was what the farmer himself was able to use. And uh, he was dependent upon that for feeding his, his animals. Uh, if he lost the second cut, there was no opportunity for a third cut. Uh, he would be ruined if that uh, wasn't provided for him. And the plague is poised for being unleashed. Uh, hay is cut when, when the, the, the seed head of the grass uh, comes through. And we're at the point where, where the, 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 the grass is sprouting. The seed head is forming. It's shortly destined for mowing. And at the same time, God is preparing this plague of locusts that are going to do their devastating work on the hay crop. Disaster is imminent. And the important thing to notice is that 
God is forming the locust. It's his hand. He is the creator God, even over this tiny creature, this tiny little beastie that can do so much work. God's judgment is intensive. It involves the detail of life. And Amos pleads for Israel. He pleads for forgiveness, uh, which uh, is obviously uh, acknowledging the fact that the judgment is on the people's sin. They need to uh, be forgiven for the wrongdoing. And he pleads poignantly for Israel's helplessness. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Uh, it's interesting that he uses the name Jacob, uh, Israel's old name. Often in the Bible, when uh, the country and the people are referred to as Jacob, it's underlining the fact that uh, they're, they're frail and sinful. Jacob was the twister, the deceiver. And so Israel is referred to by uh, his, his earlier name. And it's also... Uh, ironic because Israel has already been uh, condemned for her grand thoughts about herself, how, how powerful she is, how powerful a military machine she has, how economically powerful she is. But the reality is very different. Jacob is so small. She can't stand up uh, to, to such an onslaught. Amos pleads pathetically for Israel, and God hears his prayer and relents. Then there's the second vision. It's the, it's the vision of fire. And uh, if we think of the, the locust plague, the, uh, the multiplying of these tiny insects as being uh, God's intensive judgment, his, his control over the detail, then we can think of the fire that uh, encompasses subterranean waters and the land of God's judgment being extensive. It covers all things. Now, uh, some commentators think that the, 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 the fire uh, going uh, into the deep uh, is the, the fire uh, depriving the land of the, the, the deep waters that would have come to uh, refresh the ground after the plague of locusts. And others think that it refer, it's a reference to the, the home of, 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 the superna of the supernatural uh, spirits. Uh, but in, in a sense, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's simply referring to the fact that uh, God's judgment is over all things. Uh, there is nothing which uh, can escape his hand of judgment. Uh, he is the God who will, will come in judgment over the whole cosmos. Uh, no part of creation, no power of hell or earth or heaven can stand up against God. Uh, he will destroy all his enemies. His judgment's extensive. And again, uh, Amos comes and he pleads for forgiveness. Again, uh, Jacob is so small, Jacob cannot bear it. And God relents and God says he will not act. So what are we to make of the two visions uh, and this threatening of judgment, and then God seeming to change his mind. What's going on here? Well, we were actually thinking this morning uh, on similar lines, God does not make U-turns. Uh, he doesn't ordain whatsoever comes to pass, but change his ordaining of future events as time goes on. That would mean that God's will is changeable. It's not. It's steadfast. It's reliable. What is being underlined here is that God always acts in conformity to his covenant. He always 
uniformly, invariably acts in accordance with his covenant. And his covenant uh, expresses God's desire to show mercy. If his people will repent, God will grant forgiveness. And so, what this language of relenting and repenting that we sometimes have in the Bible uh, simply represents to us the, what's going on in the covenant. God is a God whose judgment uh, is turned aside because of the provision of sacrifice in Jesus from people who repent. God desires to show mercy. And his mercy is shown when, uh, when people repent. And God causes people to repent when he sends people praying, as he does uh, with Amos. Uh, Amos intercedes, and the people repent. When Amos is shown uh, the, the horror of judgment, he has pictures uh, which he goes on to show the people by his word of prophecy. And when Amos does that, what God is doing is he is opening the eyes of the people of Israel to the reality of something that they didn't see, the reality of judgment, this dreadful, dreadful judgment that is hanging over them. Uh, they were doing all that they could to block it out, and now they have it uh, in full and glorious technicolor with these powerful images of locust plague and fire, God is warning them of the judgment to come. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the, the preacher uh, in New England in, in uh, the 18th century, uh, was Amos-like in a lot of his preaching. He used powerful images uh, to communicate to, to the people that were sitting in the pews in front of him uh, the reality of judgment. In, in Edward's day, unlike our own, uh, the whole community would come to church. And many of the people who were there, uh, although they were regular in church, they were unconverted. They, they didn't know uh, the grace of God in their lives. And they had to be shaken out of their complacency, as the Israelites did, uh, by powerful messages uh, which drove home the reality of judgment. Let me give you a flavor of how Edwards preached. You probably are not sensible of this. You find you're kept out of hell, but do not see the hand of God in it. But look at other things, as the good state of your bodily constitution, your care of your own life, and the means you use for your own preservation. But indeed, these things are nothing. If God should withdraw his hand, they would avail no more to keep you from falling than the thin air to hold up a person that is suspended in it. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution, and your own care and prudence and best contrivance, and all your righteousness would have no more influence to hold you up and keep you out of hell than a spider's web 
would have to stop a falling rock. Amos is doing the same job with his listeners. He's communicating powerfully the, the danger that they are in uh, with the imminent judgment of God. Then we have this third vision, and it's the vision of the plumb line. Plumb line, uh, a cord with a weight in the end of it, usually lead, used by builders to determine whether something is upright or not. God, Yahweh, says that the wall in the vision was built with a plumb line. And now he's coming against it with the same plumb line to see if it is as it was when it was first built. Now, the meaning is that this is that the wall, of course, is Israel. And Israel was built by plumb line. What was the plumb line? Well, we, we tend to think that the plumb line would be the law of God. And that's part of the answer, because when, when Israel was made into the wall, when Israel was made a nation at Mount Sinai, when they had been brought out of Egypt, they were constituted a nation before God at the great assembly. And God gave them the law. But God also showed them grace. Uh, and it's always important for us to remember that God gave the law to a redeemed people. Uh, the, the, the first lines of the Ten Commandments are a reminder that the law is not the way of righteousness for Israel. The law is the response to grace for Israel. I am the God who took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Therefore, this is your response. You shall have no other gods before me. This is how Israel was constituted. The plumb line was a plumb line of grace law and law grace. And now the plumb line is coming back to this wall that was first built with law and grace to see how it stands with Israel. And Israel is far off the plumb. Far off the plumb. Instead of uh, responding uh, with gratitude to, to the grace of God, uh, she has been uh, relying upon grace or, or sacrifice uh, and using it as, as an excuse uh, to live to please uh, self. Uh, or where they have used the law, the law has been used uh, as, a, as, a, as a merit-earning uh, mechanism. Uh, it's been used in an ungracious way. Uh, they think that their religious observances, the, the two, the three, the four good deeds that they have done, will shield them uh, from, from God and from his judgment. But God comes uh, with the plumb line of law grace. And like a much later king, uh, a Persian king, Belshazzar, uh, who has a vision also, and his life is measured, measured in the scales, Israel is found wanting. And judgment will fall, and will fall on the two key areas of Israel life, Israelite life, the sanctuaries, uh, the religious uh, focus of Israel, uh, the, the place where uh, multiplied sacrifices were made, uh, the places where the, the unorthodox priests carried out their duties, and on the, the royal household, the household of Jeroboam II, which had led the way in showing contempt for the poor 
and oppressing them. They hadn't seen the danger, but they saw it now. God's word has come to them in a powerful, in a, in a vivid, in, in a, a, a bright and illuminating way and has shown them the danger under which they stand. They are about to be swept aside by the plague. They are about to be consumed in the fire. They've been measured and they've been found wanting. And the question, when we in the 21st century are spoken to by the word of God through the prophecy of Amos is, how is it with us? How is it with you? When God comes with his measuring line and, and, and uses the standard of grace and law to see how it is with you, then the reality, if you're not a Christian tonight, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus and are seeking to serve him, is that the judgment of God is piled up over your head like the waters behind a great dam that's about to burst and unleash it upon your head. God's word opens our eyes to what the world around us denies. There is a judge of all the earth who will do right. But it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. Secondly, there's a question, uh, who's telling the truth? We have this autobiographical piece uh, in the, the second half of chapter 7. Uh, we have Amos and Amaziah the priest in a kind of Mexican uh, standoff. Amaziah has heard what Amos has been saying, but he has his own set of alternative facts. Uh, his message to Jeroboam the second is uh, Amos is mounting a conspiracy against him. In other words, he's got a political agenda. He's trying to undermine the the, the establishment. And also, it's bad for public morale. It's so negative. Amos, in all his preaching, uh, is nothing but doom and gloom, and the land cannot bear it. It's just getting too much for the people. That's by and large, of course, the way that people uh, and the media portray what the gospel is like and what preachers are doing. Uh, they are they're so negative. Um, and, and so awkward, really, when there's a, a public consensus about uh, how good it is that we have diversity in society. We have these negative and narrow Christians speaking out. And the land cannot bear them, and they'd better shut up. And that brings a strong pressure on the preacher of the word to be quiet and move on. And Amaziah is so blunt with Amos. Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. It's interesting to see the, the insidious pressure that comes through Amaziah's words. First of all, there's a, a temptation to avoid the fight with those who reject the message of the word of God. Go back to Judah. There's your bread there. Uh, now, <laughs> if, if Amos was prophesying in Judah about northern Israel, it would go down really well. You know, they would be really pleased uh, to hear a prophet knocking their northern neighbors who were a thorn in the flesh to them. 
And so there's this uh, temptation uh, to go and to, to bring a message that's comfortable rather than to bring a message which is resisted. Uh, so uh, it's a little bit like the attraction of you know, preaching against the, the, the Pope at an orange uh, rally, that, that kind of thing. There's nobody who's going to uh, bat an eyelid. You're going to have a solid support from what you're saying. But in Israel, it was an uncomfortable message. Back in Judah, he would have lots of support. Go back and earn your bread there. And the, the illusion is that you can find security, Amos, if you go back. To, uh, to Judah, then there will be people who you know who will support you and back you, and, and you'll have security. You can earn your bread there, but not here. This is the royal palace. This is the royal sanctuary. Amos, you're well out of your depth. Get back into your comfort zone. So, all of these, all of these pressures are pressures which the true preacher of the word will feel at different times. There will be this, this pushback, uh, this, this sense, well, it would be so much easier to uh, just keep the message as something which is appealing, something which will be attractive. Uh, there's the appeal of having security, and there is the appeal to stick to where you're comfortable and it would have been, these would have been strong temptations to Amos had he not felt under the powerful call of God. Uh, and Amos comes uh, with, with a, a wonderfully strong retort to the, the pressure of Amaziah. He denies, first of all, that he has been groomed in any way for the, the, prophet, the prophetic ministry. Uh, he, he wasn't a preacher's kid. There was no expectation that he would become a prophet. He didn't enter the prophetic ministry because he, he wanted a, a hike in salary or because he wanted to have a more prestigious place in society. He was actually doing very well, thank you. Uh, he wasn't a, a poor, impoverished shepherd. He was actually a successful agriculturalist. Uh, we think he probably had quite a thriving business. He was a shepherd and he was a tender of sycamore fig trees. And he would have been very happy to have continued on with that. But the Lord placed upon Amos uh, a call that he could not reject. And it made it impossible for Amos to do anything other than preach the gospel of God to the people of Israel and Judah. Which is always to be the case for the preacher. Uh, we ought to do anything else that we can do other than preaching for our calling because uh, the opposition, for one thing, is, is so fearful that nothing less than uh, an iron-cast call from God will sustain us through it. If we can do anything else, then we should do it. But woe betide, on the other hand, the person uh, knowing that God is calling them to preach, who runs away. Then we have this uh, wonderful, fearless, defiant response from uh, Amos to uh, Amaziah. Uh, 
Now then, he says, hear the word of the Lord. We've got an almost Martin Luther-like refrain here. Martin Luther, who at the Diet of Worms said, here I am, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, Here we have Amos saying, you say, do not prophesy against Israel. And you say, stop preaching against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. And he goes on in no uncertain terms to make it clear that Amaziah will share the lot of Israel. They will come under judgment. They will be brought away into exile. Well, it's hard sometimes to to know who's telling the truth. When the devil comes uh, with his own uh, news, with with his own message, uh, he's smart enough uh, to to be well disguised. He doesn't come any longer uh, with uh, tights and a trident and a forked tail. He comes uh, in much more respectable guise. He has the trappings of the establishment. Uh, He's a government minister, a leading scientist, television celebrity. He's a bishop or a moderator. And his alternative facts come with all of the the forcefulness of respectability and security and public consensus. Everybody believes this. How do we know then when it's so confusing where the truth lies? We meet the truth in Jesus. This is the word to us. Jesus is the one who embodies the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the light. He is the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness. He is the one who comes into our world and he shakes Nathaniel. Because he knows all about Nathaniel before he's even met Nathaniel, while Nathaniel is still under the fig tree. He knows what's in his heart. He's the one who leaves the woman of Samaria amazed that he has shone his light right into her heart and he knows all about her, knows her shame and failure. And she goes off to her friends and she says to her friends, come, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. He's the man who comes to Nicodemus. Nicodemus and Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus by night. He is in every sense a man in the dark, although he doesn't realize it. He thinks that he knows a thing or two Uh, We know, Rabbi, that you're a man sent from God. We think we know something. Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're as blind as a mole, Nicodemus. But this one who is the light of the world uh, illuminates the heart of Nicodemus so that Nicodemus is brought to faith, becomes a believer. Jesus is the one who is true truth. Uh, He's the one who meets us in his word and in his light we see the word and the world as it really is. We see the predicament that the world is in, that we are in, and we see the way of salvation as it is uniquely found in Jesus. Where do we meet the truth? We meet the truth in Jesus. What's the great question that all of us have to ask? Am I on the side of the truth? Do I receive the truth 
by receiving Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. May it be so for all of us. May God bless to us his word.